I think it was being overweight for for such a large part of my life. And on top of that, I didn't really have very many friends in high school. I never fit into any certain group or the popular crowd or anything. And I think it also had a lot to do with never feeling like I belonged, really. Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And as the name would suggest... This is a very different podcast, or you might want to think of it as an oddcast. You see, this oddcast is for people who value real, different conversations. Conversations that sit at the intersection of business, marketing, and life. And this is a very special episode with none other than Mia Khalifa. And uh, Mia today is a social media megastar and sports commentator. And... She was also the former number one adult film actor on some of the top uh, adult film websites or adult websites on the planet. And so this is really the story you're about to hear, the conversation you're about to hear is a story of redemption and life design. Imagine being a 21-year-old gal and a guy coming up to you um, and handing you a business card and saying, hey, you might be great in adult films. Why not give me a call? And then imagine making that call. And then imagine that you worked for three months and earned 12 grand doing something on a lark that you thought no one would see. And then uh, finding yourself in a scandal on CNN and becoming uh, the top adult star or actor. Um, and then what do you do when that's not what you want and you feel like you made a big mistake? That's the conversation uh, we are about to hear with Mia. She's incredibly open. She's incredibly real. And this is an amazing story of redemption and um, life design that I think you're going to find riveting. Uh, For more information on Mia, go to lockhead.com and check out the show notes for this episode. And now, like Joey Ramone said, hey ho, let's go. So I grew up being obsessed with Green Day to the point where people were worried about me and my obsession. And I kind of loved Green Day so much, I decided to backtrack to all of Green Day's influences and then became obsessed with them and realized, oh, wow, Green Day is just a knockoff Clash. So the Clash is now my favorite band. <laughs> and I think some of us might say Green Day is a bit of a Ramones knockoff. I don't know if you could see yeah, why Ramones Yeah, but it, up, oh, but, that's awesome. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the four chord like punk rock era, that is my jam. Hey, listen, I think we're going to be really good friends because <laughs> we could talk about nothing but four chord punk rock for the next 12 hours and I would be very, very happy. That's what made me want to learn guitar. To this day, the only song I know how to play is Hey Ho, Let's Go, which is on the surfboard behind you and uh, Green Day's Time of Your Life. Isn't that a great song? What is it? G, C, and D or something yeah, like that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, then you got the whole thing. And you know, the amazing thing, that song was so big, right? That Am I getting this right? Isn't that the song in the, I might be wrong. Is that the song at the, at the end of uh, Seinfeld? It is. Yeah, they played Time of Your Life. It's this oh, song at the episode, end of a lot of right? iconic, yeah. Yeah. I mean, way to go on the song. <laughs> I know that song gets played at every graduation and every funeral. Yeah. And you know, I heard Sting say years ago, no clash, no police. 
Absolutely true. And like, imagine the world of music we'd be in if the police didn't influence some of the bands today. Well, the amazing thing about The Clash too is like they sparked this whole uh, fusion, a new a new niche really of music that was uh, incorporating reggae, right? So they were the first big band to have big reggae components and punk components together. Yeah. Right? And so that sort of fusion, you know, if you, you look back at it, a lot of the, the fusion, the, the sort of mixing up of di- different genres that came after that. Today, of course, we have rap and, and uh, um, country music, right? Well, really, the Clash were at the front end of that. that I, I guess that's true. I mean, not so much with, uh, with rap, but I mean, Lost in the Supermarket is, to this day, my favorite song. I want that, I want that played at my funeral. Wow. That's cool. Why, why do you love it so much? Just, I don't know the way, the way it's sung, the way it flows. It's just, it, it always puts me in a good mood. That's my favorite song of all time. Yeah. I love, uh, uh, police on my back. Yeah. And I love Joe, Joe Strummer so much. I mean, I think he's one of the most soulful and I don't mean soul music per se, but like just, there's so much of his humanity in the music and, you know, I remember when Rock the Cosbah came out and Should I Stay or Should I Go? And that blew everything away. And, of course, London Calling was clearly the shot heard around the world. Exactly. Um, everyone, like the iconic opening chords, everyone like knows what to expect as soon as they hear it. Everyone's ears perk up. I think they sold out Shea Stadium in New York, if I remember right. They did? They were massive, yeah. That was the good old days. <laughs> well, I love the good old days when I wasn't alive. <laughs> I love that you love punk rock so much. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited for that Green Day and Blink-182 and Weezer stadium tour around the world. Yeah, I think we'll go see them. I've seen Green Day once. I assume you've seen them? They were my first concert. No kidding. Yeah. What tour was it? Do you remember? American Idiot. No way. Yeah. Yeah, that was a hell of a tour. Man, you know, they turned into this stadium rock band. I mean, it just... They are as big as big can be when they get down on that stage, man. Yeah. They, I mean, their personalities just, they fill up the stage. It's incredible. Like, it's really cool to see them go from this, like, grunge underground band to, like, owning like and holding their own on these huge stadiums and sold-out shows. Yeah, and because they're a Bay Area band, you know, that's where I see them because I'm in Santa Cruz, right? So it's amazing to see them in their hometown, right? Because of course there's an extra electricity to it. Yeah, that's so cool. Oh, so growing up in Maryland, I was, I was still very young when I got into Green Day. Um, and I didn't really understand a lot of the lyrics and what they were singing about. And growing up in Maryland, I, I, the Chesapeake Bay was the bay to me. So for like the first five years of my fandom, I thought they were from the Chesapeake Bay area. I'm like, this is so cool. Like a local band. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. It's funny when we're kids, how we can be naive about little things like that, right? Exactly. Looking back on it, I'm like, God, I'm an idiot. Yeah. Well, yeah. Aren't we all though? (laughs) Now, I also have an important question for you. Who's going to win the Stanley Cup this year? It's going to be the Capitals. What kind of question is that? (laughs) He's on fire. That was going to be the answer. (laughs) I just wanted to double check. What kind of fan would I be if I gave an actual educated guess? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I'm sort of embarrassed to tell you, I don't follow hockey that closely anymore. And the reason I'm embarrassed to tell you that is I grew up in Montreal, Canada, and the great uh, Canadians teams were all my heroes growing up. 
And you just stopped? Like, did they not play those games where you live now? No, look, of course, I live in the Bay Area and the Sharks are beloved here. And I think that's really cool. I generally get to at least a game a season. And, and I, you know, I sort of watch with half an eye, but I, I don't watch like I used to watch. And, I, you know, I sort of feel like a bad Canadian because I'm there's there's no way like, you know, 10x more about what's going on in the NHL than I do for sure. But that's how I feel about college football these days. College football was my number one sport for like 10 plus years. And recently, the last two seasons, I have just, it, I don't have the spark for it anymore. Like I'm not, of course I'll watch, you know, part of the Florida State game, but then I'll turn it off halfway through and turn on Netflix or turn on CNN or something else because I don't know, it's just not captivating me like it used to. I don't know if it's all of the outside influence with you know, paying the athletes and slowing the game down with all of the rule changes or the fact that Florida State is abysmal and a complete embarrassment to the ACC. But I just don't have the same love for it as I used to. Yeah, I guess it's just ebbs and flows in life. Like sometimes yeah. I surf five times a week and then sometimes I go two weeks without surfing and I'm not sure yeah. why. Hopefully uh, I'll, I'll get the spark back. Yeah, you're hoping to fall back in love with college football. <laughs> So you seem like a real, like, of, of course, it's, it's a big part of what you're doing today. And I want to hear more about it. Um, but like, you seem to just have this genuine love of sports. Has that always been there? It's always been there since, since I was a kid. And since I started to learn English, it's kind of just been uh, a common ground that I, that I could have with people and um, a way for me to connect and a way for me to feel like I'm a part of something or, you know, feel like I'm a part of this group, even if I don't know anyone in it. Like I could be, my manager could be driving me down the street to a meeting and I'll see someone wearing a Redskins shirt and I'll roll the window down and yell at them. Like that's, that's what sports is to me. Sports is a unifying factor in this world. It is fun that, isn't it? Because you can walk up to somebody wearing uh, your team's shirt and, and, chances are like super high that you're going to have a conversation that both of you are going to enjoy, right? Yeah. Or, like imagine, imagine walking up to a stranger and just holding up your hand for a high five when you're like without sports involved, but you put a Jersey on either one of them and say, Hey, go insert name of team here. And immediately y'all are best friends. Yeah. It's funny. It's like, or when you move away from your hometown and if you meet somebody who's from that hometown, then you know, oh, it's, it's all you that. hold on to them for dear life. Yeah, there's a funny connection that happens yeah. that way. So, so you felt as a as a young girl, then you felt that uh, wanting to be part of that kind of connection. Um, more so, I think, yeah, deep down, maybe, but it was more so like uh, I was still learning English at the time, but watching basketball. I mean, we have basketball in Lebanon, of course, so the rules are the same. So it was very easy for me to watch and follow along and recognize the rules and recognize the similarities and kind of pick up on words here and there and start to learn the verbiage and terminology through that. And it kind of, I don't, I don't know, it made me feel like I was succeeding at something in English because I already had uh, an idea of how it worked in Lebanon. Yeah, that's cool. And it was bad. So it started with basketball. It started with basketball and then immediately after came my love for football. Um, I, I remember my first Thanksgiving, I watched the Redskins play the Cowboys and I thought that this is just how every week was. Every week was this exciting. Every week, everyone cooked this much food just for a football game. <laughs> well, so I was like, you know, I can get into this sport. This yeah. is a delicious sport. Well, yeah, because you, uh, what did you say on your Instagram that you're never not hungry or always hungry or something? 
never not hungry. Yesterday I woke up to use the, like just to go pee at one in the morning and somehow ended up downstairs eating a piece of bread with butter. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, this is a tangent, but I, I really appreciate women who eat. Um, my, my wife is five feet tall and she's not a very big person. And I'm telling you, she eats, when we go out to dinner, she eats at least as much as I do. And like, she feels, she feels a little embarrassed if she's still eating and I'm not eating. Yeah. Gonna out eat me at dinner. Oh yeah. No, my fiance will be the first to tell you that he, and he's a chef. I can eat him under the table every time we go out at home. I'm always snacking. He eats literally just three tiny meals a day. And I'm just like a compost. I'll put anything in my stomach, just anything and everything. And do you get like I get, this doesn't happen to me too much, but when it happens, it's full on where it's like, you want to eat like 12 Italian meals of pot. Like you just, you can't, you could just. There's no in between for me. Yeah. There's no in between. I either go all day without eating and kind of forget about it, or I do not stop eating the whole day. Now I've, I've heard you say in the past, um, you know, that you were, uh, how do I want to say it as, as nicely as I can think of, uh, you weren't always as felt as you are today. I was it? a little bit more spherical. <laughs> spherical. Yeah. I, there, listen, there's been points in my life where I'm more spherical than I wish I was. Sure. Yeah. This was, this was like borderline diabetes spherical though. I was a big girl and I lost a bunch of weight very fast in, the, in a very short period of time. Um, in an you, unhealthy you how much way. You lost? Yeah. I lost a little over 50 pounds. In what kind of time frame? Uh, less than a year. Wow. Like nine months. And how tall are you? I'm five two. Uh, wh- wow. That's a yeah. so. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. <laughs> no, but like, that's a lot for a person with that frame. That's all. <laughs> oh, I did not care. Yeah. It's not like, oh yeah, you probably filled out. No, it was just all midsection. <laughs> and so what, what was it that caused this, uh, this change at, at how old were you when you lost the weight again? I was like 18, 19. And had so you been, all my life, I've been, been a, overweight. a little bit on the, uh, <laughs> the, the rounder side uh, throughout your I childhood. have always been on the round, rounder side, which I don't really understand because no one else in my family is that way. It was just me. But I think I was also the only one who was smoking weed in high school. So that might have had something to do with it. What was the weed making you hungry? Or? Oh my God, I would eat everything and anything. Yeah, isn't it funny? It's like uh, pot will make you eat the entire, like I have to make a deal with myself and say, okay, look, if you're going to have a snack and I got to pre-plan that shit. Otherwise, cause you can't, you cannot walk into the pantry stone. No, no. Oh God. You, first of all, you'll be standing there for 30 minutes trying to decide what you want to eat. And second of all, you'll just end up taking everything in like within your hands and bringing it back to the couch. No, well, I choose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. For me, getting stoned is, uh, I could never, ever, ever do it in public. For me, it's a very like ritualistic thing where it's at home, it's at night, and I have a snack and that's it. Yeah. It's not a party thing for me. It's not a fun thing. It's just a relaxing thing. Yeah. Yeah, I completely understand that. And, and the other thing too is like, if you're stoned in public, you have to act like you're not stoned. Oh, and then you look stoned trying to act like you're not stoned. Well, right. And then the whole point of being stoned is to be stoned. So why do yeah. I now have to act like I'm not stoned, which is actually a lot of mental energy, which takes away the fun of being stoned. And so I kind of with you, like I want to be stoned by myself. Yeah, I think you know, I think those are the people. 
Yeah, those are the people who complain about, you know, getting paranoid from smoking weed. Like, because you're doing it in public. Stay in your house and there's no paranoia involved. Yeah, hang out at your house. Spend some time with the people you love smoking yeah. some pot. With your dogs. Dogs are the best to be around when you're stoned. Well, I think animals are always great to be around. And it's, uh, actually, I was just talking to a dear friend of mine about this. It's, this sounds corny, I know, but it's an incredible thing when an animal loves the shit out of you. Oh my God. I think about that constantly. Like sometimes my dog will be sitting on the complete other side of the couch and completely, you know, unprovoked will just get up from their sweet slumber and trot over and lay right beside, beside me. And I'll look at them like, I don't deserve this kind of love. I don't deserve this unconditional love from you. Why are you so good to me? Yeah, it's crazy. And you know, when they look you straight in the eye, and they're just sort of loving the shit out of you with their eyes. You're like, what is going on here? How is this possible? It's incredible. That's, it's that's what makes me want to be a better person. Just the way my dog looks. I want to be the kind of person my dog thinks I am. That's my yeah. motivation every day. Yeah, I love that. Say, don't they have like t-shirts and shit that say that or yeah. or something? Yeah. I'm trying to be the person my mother thinks I am too. Well, I'm not in- Oh no, you'll never live up to that. Aim, aim a little lower. Go for your dog. <laughs> <laughs> but you know uh, as a side note we have eight hens chickens and i didn't Do they want lay to- eggs yeah they lay eggs every day you, have, you have a farm well i wouldn't call it a we have a garden but we got you know with eight hens and i mean they lay like you know i don't know four to well the older ones less and the younger ones more but you know pr- probably on average three eggs each a week what yeah, no, we're constantly giving eggs to everybody we know. That's awesome. But here's the crazy thing. They're incredible pets. Really? They're, they're every bit as smart and fun and funny and personality rich as a dog or a cat. And they're They don't smart. run away from you? No, they they want us to pick them up. Oh my god, that's so cute. Yeah. Yeah, I'm Beatrice's emotional support person. <laughs> you name your chickens? Oh yeah, they all have great names. You know, oh like my God. Mildred. Give me a Apple. couple others. Oh, uh, it's got yeah, it's got to be Golden Girl names, right? Like, I, isn't Mildred an awesome name? Yeah, like it's got to be an old an old lady name that sounds like all she does is sit around all day and gossip. Mildred's a perfect name for that. Yeah, and one of our more recent ones, I love this name. Her name is Winifred. We call her Winnie. Winifred. Cute. Isn't that a great name, Winifred? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, animals. Awesome. And so you have a dog? I have two dogs. Yeah. Two dogs. Yeah. It's a handful. Yeah. How old are they? Seven and six. But now I'm getting puppy fever and I'm looking into a third. Excellent. And I That's don't know. I'm, I'm just worried about whether or not like my love has that kind of depth, whether or not I can stand to love another being as much because I already feel spread thin between the two dogs. Like I feel guilty when I don't give one as much attention as the other. So thinking about adding a third to the mix, I'm like, well, there's not going to be any love left over for my fiance. <laughs> well, yeah, it's funny. I used to work with a guy who um, at the time I met him was a, was a, a, a new grandfather. He had maybe one or two very young grandchildren. And, and so he was talking about how <clears throat> as the grandchildren have come on, he he just gets lower and lower in his wife's pecking order, and and he says, and now I worry we're going to have more grandchildren, and she's going to buy more dogs because with every one I'm lower and lower on the list. 
Oh my God. That's so funny. So yeah, you, you got to give your guy a shot for a while here before yeah. you just obliterate him below a mountain of dogs. <laughs> You're probably right. He to have kids. Then he's fit. You know, he just keeps falling down the list. That's the thing. It's a guy. That's actually, that's actually my biggest fear. I, I fear so much that my fiance will love our children more than he loves me, which is of course going to happen, but still I fear for it. I don't know. I mean, I, I think I, at least for me, I, I, I feel like I love different people in different ways. It's not, I like, Oh, I have, you know, you know, a hundred percent love and I give 15% over here and 4% yeah. over there. You know, I don't think about it quite that way, but I, 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 I can see that, I guess. I'll fucking kill him if he does. <laughs> What have you guys decided when you're getting married? Uh, yeah, June 2021. Wow, that sounds very exciting. Congratulations! Thank you. I'm very so excited. You, uh, I'm excited about all the time to plan. Yeah, are you are you knee deep in the plans already? Not so much knee deep, but we've dipped our toes in. We've talked to photographers. I'm talking to a planner. We're going to do it overseas, so it's we we will definitely be lucky to have all of this time to plan it. Well, that sounds uh, sounds very exciting. I I hope you have a wonderful ceremony, and and I also hope you know sometimes people seem to get very carried away with the wedding and forget a little bit about the marriage. Oh no no no! Uh, it's definitely not going to be like that. He would never let it be like that. That's probably me if I was just in charge of it. But no, he would definitely he would start putting his foot down. He's all about keeping it intimate and small and, you know, all of that. But then he wants 150 guests. And I'm like, this isn't lining up. We need to talk. Well, maybe you have uh, close to that many people. I'm the one who wants like a big, beautiful wedding with 30 guests. And he wants a tiny, intimate wedding with 150 people. I'm like, we need to meet halfway. Now, I, I heard you talk. I think it was on a podcast, but... Uh, I did, it was definitely you talking, so it was somewhere, and you, you were single at the time, and you were describing some a little bit of what sounded like maybe some distraught to me, that it was tough to be you and be sing, single. Um, oh, actually, I think that was on the Lance Armstrong podcast. Okay, yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, and so um, could you tell me a little bit about that and, and how uh, Mr. Wonderful broke through the, the, the situation? You know what? It's a beautiful thing when he had no idea who I was. I, I'm, I mean, I love food. Uh, I am a huge foodie. I love traveling and trying new restaurants. So um, I follow the Michelin Guide on Instagram, and they posted about this restaurant that had just, you know, made history in Sweden called Fransen. They had just gotten three stars in the fastest time possible, and it was the first three star restaurant in Sweden. So. Uh, the Michelin guy took me to Franson's page and then uh, a couple, like a couple rows down, Franson had posted this picture of a very handsome looking chef saying, thank you so much for all you've done for us. Thank you for your time. Good luck in Copenhagen. And that took me to Robert's page and I started following him and I liked about, you know, seven pictures in a row on his page thinking, oh, I'll never see this. And then the next day I wake up to a message from him saying, hey. How are you? So, are you into food? And I'm like, I, I honestly got not starstruck, but I would Jeff, get out of my frame. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I got very, uh, very nervous immediately, and I didn't know why. I'm like, oh, this guy is probably just going to start trying to spit game, or you know, sound like every other guy on the internet. But he genuinely had no idea who I was, and it wasn't until 
we started talking that he Googled me because he's like, who is this girl with 5 million followers following me and FaceTiming with me? (laughs) (laughs) So, so do I take that to mean that you had to go to Sweden to find a guy who'd never heard of you? I had to go all the way to Europe to find a guy worth dating. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't, I I guess it's hard to measure, but uh, you tell me, but, uh, um, I mean, you're one of the most visible women ever on the internet. Yeah, yeah. So for me, it's not just about finding someone who's uh, who's okay with my past. It was more so about finding someone who wasn't intrigued by it or curious in a malicious way or, you know, after me for the wrong reasons, like whether it be to brag to his friends or just like to be, you know, a notch on the headboard or any one of those reasons that I had encountered dating men, you know, in Austin or in Miami or anywhere in America. And so, uh, that must just, it sounds like that was very different then. Robert was very different with you. He was very different. And I think it was because he treated me like, what's the word I'm looking for? A human being. Yeah. You know, there, there's an interesting thing about the fact that you met him on Instagram to me. I had this aha a little while ago. I had some friends over uh, from uh, the UK and dear, dear friends. And I hadn't seen their kids in quite a few years. And the last time I saw them, they were kind of, you know, I don't know, six, seven or whatever. And now they were kind of mid teenagers. And so we had this wonderful time. We, we live in Santa Cruz near the beach and we went to the beach for the dinner for dinner and had a fire and all this stuff. And the whole time the kids are on their devices, like the whole time. And I was bugging them about it and this and that. The next day I woke up and I realized, oh, this is the first generation who their digital life is their real life and their physical life is an interruption to their digital life. So the sunset is interfering with their regular life. And so with that sort of said, so much of your life is on the internet. Is you have this massive digital, and you're a digital, I would argue you're a digital celebrity. Yeah. I, so what's I mean, that like? Weird. You're a new, like people did, didn't do that 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think about it all the time. My job did not exist 20 years ago. Like what I'm doing now, all of the podcasts I'm doing and, uh, you know, sports commentary, anything that I'm involved in would not have existed 20 years ago. And it's cool to a certain extent, but at the same time, um, I, I grew up in that bubble where I didn't have a cell phone until I was 19 years old. I, you know, had to borrow flip phones to call and ask to be picked up from the movies or use a payphone and things like that. So I remember what dial up internet and all of that is like. So I think that I, I, I do a good job of balancing real life and internet or my online life. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't affect me in the way that it does affect people who are even like two or three years younger than me. Cause they went through high school with iPhones and, you know, just being, having everything at their fingertips. Whereas we had to struggle a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so, but you're a new breed of cat in that, um, 
there were no there was no such thing called a digital celebrity or a social yeah. media star or you know all the influencer I, I don't like that term at all but whatever that is right you're a whole new thing that didn't exist <laughs> so tell me about being this whole new digital um you know celebrity it's weird because i didn't go looking for this it kind of just happened and I tried to make the best out of a very weird and uncomfortable situation. So for me, it's always a little jarring when people recognize me or people call me a celebrity or people, you know, even when they point out like, oh my God, you have this many followers. And like, oh yeah, I do. That's, it's weird. I kind of forget about it. I, I use my Instagram unless, unless I'm like posting an ad or actually working. I use my Instagram like literally only seven of my close friends are seeing what I'm posting. And sometimes my fiance doesn't like that because I'll post him looking terrible and post something embarrassing of him. And he has to remind me like, you have almost 18 million followers. Like, could you not post me when I first wake up with my hair looking like Ted Bundy? (laughs) So um, maybe you could help me with how you got here. I mean, your your story is a fascinating one and uh, maybe a cautionary one. Um, but I'd love for you to, more so. I'd love for you to take me back and, and tell me, you know, how you got here. Well, to be honest, it all really started with, uh, not having, n- not having the wherewithal to know how to address, uh, low self-esteem and the way I was feeling about myself. Um, it, it really all stems from that. Like if I, had made a few different decisions, I would not be where I am today. For better or worse, I wouldn't be where I am today. Um, I entered the adult film industry in 2014. In 2014, and uh, how, I how old were you at the time? I was I was 21 years old. So, you know, 21. Right. <laughs> that's a, that's a young. It's fair to say that's a young person making a very big decision. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, you know, being 21 years old, of course, I knew everything and didn't need to consult anyone about my decisions because I have all of the answers naturally. My brain is fully formed, right? Um, so, yeah, I jumped into a decision that uh, I really regretted. Um, it wasn't so much a little, a little pressured, but more so was kind of just looking for validation from places that I should not have been seeking validation uh, to make me feel better about myself. Um, It wasn't really for the money. It wasn't for attention at all. Uh, In fact, the reason I did it was because I thought no one would ever find out about it. And this could be like a little ego boost just for me to, uh, you know, kickstart my confidence and self-esteem. And, you know, all these people are telling me I look pretty, so it has to be true. Um, But in reality, all, all of that validation is fleeting. And uh, as I got older, I realized that confidence comes from being proud of yourself and making decisions that you take pride in and doing things that make you and others around you feel good, not things that are beneficial to one party and are temporary for you. Like you have to put yourself first. Whereas I was more putting uh, the people who were in the industry who were telling me that I should be doing these things before me. Hmm. 
So you were listening to people that in hindsight, maybe you don't think you should have been listening to? Yeah. Like I, I was fooled into thinking they had my best interests at heart. Um, when in reality, they were just looking out for themselves and they looked at me and saw a huge paycheck. Yeah. And I, so I've heard you talk about this that, uh, so how long did you do it? About three months. So at 21 years old, you make a decision and you do this for three months. And uh, remind me how much you think you made in those three months? Oh, uh, I made $12,000 before taxes. So six or eight grand yeah. after tax. Yeah. And so in the industry, there's no notion of a, a residual or a royalty or... No, there's no, there's no SAG anything. Like there's no SAG card. You're not a member of anything. There's no union. Uh, you don't make royalties. You don't make anything other than the paycheck you get for that day that you were filming. But so this is a real head scratcher uh, because I've read, tell me if this is correct, that at one point in time, um, you were the number one uh, adult actress on some of the major sites for mm -hmm. like a meaningful period of time. Yeah. I mean, you, this, it was not like nobody saw this. No. Yeah, it was. And it, there, was no, mean, I, there was no ongoing value for you. None. But the ongoing value for them is millions and millions and millions of dollars. Hmm. So it's just these big corporations that are profiting off of young women who are easily impressionable and not just easily impressionable, but in vulnerable stages of their life. Like when they're between the ages of 18 and 22 is like their, their target because they know that, you know, they pay these women a few compliments and they promise them all of these things and tell them all of these fairy tales and immediately they have them trapped. And so, um, and if you don't want to talk about it, by all means, nudge me under the table. But, um, well, you know, you, you seem like an incredibly bright and talented person. And, and you certainly seem like you're very industrious from what I understand today and, and so forth. And so where, where did this low self-esteem come from? I think it was being overweight for, so, for, for such a large part of my life. Um, and on top of that, I didn't really have very many friends in high school. I was never, you know, I never fit into any certain group or, you know, the popular crowd or anything. Um, and I think it also had a lot to do with never feeling like I belonged really. Um, so when I lost all of the weight, uh, I dropped the 50 pounds and I was still extremely self-conscious because my the first thing the first thing to go when i lost the weight was my breast so i spent the rest of the time when i was you know at a healthy weight and i had a better looking physique feeling extremely self conscious of just all of this extra skin that made me look like i had had four kids by the time i was 20 so my number one priority was to get a breast augmentation and kind of restore that and i thought that would make me feel better and it it, it did that is the one thing I absolutely do not regret. I'm a huge, I, a huge advocate for uh, plastic surgery if it's coming from the right places. Not not so much like oh I want to look better for Instagram. It's more like I I want to feel better about myself, and I know that this is a healthy decision to do so. 
Um, so that's, that's one thing. That's one decision I made when I was 21 years old that I still stand behind. I, I back that one. Um, but the, the, like when I, after I got my breast augmentation, I started receiving all of this male attention that I had never in my life experienced before. And I felt like I needed to be agreeable and do and say what the men who were in my life at the time were asking of me uh, so that I wouldn't lose that. I felt like I had to trap it like lightning in a bottle. Otherwise it would go away and I would never get that kind of validation again. And my biggest why was this attention, this male attention. So, I mean, it may be a stupid question, but why was it so important and why, when it then showed up, um, did it have such an impact? Because I didn't really have the uh, the building blocks to have confidence from within. I relied on men for my happiness, my self esteem, and my self worth. Um, I I was I was at a very vulnerable time in my life where uh, I, I I feel like it was the perfect storm because. I look I looked like I was confident. Like I had a great body. I had just gotten my breasts done and you know I was a young healthy woman. Um but on the inside I still felt like the insecure 16-year-old girl who got rejected to homecoming and who was overweight and kind of felt like she had to hunch back in a room otherwise she would get made fun of because you know I had braces and glasses and a unibrow and all of this stuff that was working against me. And in my head, the reflection in the mirror hadn't started to match the way I felt about myself on the inside. Wow. That, that's a big insight. Um, because it really wasn't that long ago. No, it wasn't. And uh, to be honest, if if you don't mind me asking, I'm 26, this was five years ago, but to be honest with you, everything that I'm talking about, all of this self-love and confidence within, I, that didn't start until about two, three years ago. It took, it took about three years of therapy for me to get to where I am today. And which is why it's also taken me this long to speak about this. I went five years staying silent and not talking about the decisions that led me to enter the adult industry because I didn't even really know why. And I didn't feel comfortable talking about it because I was still unsure of who I am and what my worth was and whether or not, you know, that is the one thing that's going to define me for the rest of my life. But now, now that I know, I feel like if I don't speak out, this is going to happen to other women. And I don't want other women to feel, to feel like the way they look and the way men speak and speak to them and treat them defines who they are. That's so powerful for you to say. And I think the other thing that sort of so strikes me about your story is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, you were plucked off the street. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Someone very, you know, unassuming and normal looking walked up to me and handed me a business card when I was crossing the street at a shopping center. At a shopping center? Yeah, I was going from Pier 1 Imports to Fuddruckers. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that. Of course, isn't this where the, isn't that where this? Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's the most dangerous place in any neighborhood. So, and and how old were you when the, when this guy gave you his business card? I was twenty one years old. Twenty one. Mm-hmm. And so, and unfortunately, I'm on the older side of like who they target. What's the what do you think is the average age or the age that you see people doing this? Eighteen to twenty. 
Yeah. So 18, just as soon as they're emancipated. Yeah. And so, you know, what is it you want that maybe the, the 17, 18 to 21 year old gal who may be in a similar situation to the one you were in, um, you know, what is it you want them to know? I want them to know that they are so much more valuable than the comments they hear, the feedback they get, the way men speak to them. They are so much more than that. And their value is exponential. And if they're not feeling like they're worthy of anything, then they need to talk to someone instead of going after going going after these life decisions that, you know, will For me, what I think about the most, my my decision, what I regret about it the most is the fact that my future children are going to know about it. Eventually it's going to come out, whether it be in school when they're, you know, being teased or anything. Eventually they're going to know about it and I don't want them to look at me differently. So I want these young women to think further in the future than how they're currently feeling. And to know that it gets better and to know that they're they're worthy of all of the love in the world, no matter what. Yeah, I can't imagine um, being in your shoes in that you made the decision at 21 that you stuck to for three months um, and bam, you're branded, right? For the rest of my, like it's a scarlet letter I'm going to carry around for the rest of my life. And I, I, that's why I was so, before I was even ready to talk about this, um, I I did the Lance Armstrong interview and I only did it because A, he's a close friend of mine. So I knew he wouldn't, you know, grill me. And B, because I knew that he related to me on a level that no other man could probably relate to me because he also walks around with a scarlet letter that no matter how much good he does, it's always going to follow him, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. I, I heard that podcast and um, I had first read about you in the Washington Post and I was really struck by how human you seemed, you know. Um, I don't know how I want to say this. I don't want to be overly corny, but, you know, having been um, in marketing for over 30 years in public companies and dealing with the media and, and so forth and so on, I... I you know, it's easy to consume media and feel like you're reading about like a, a fantasy story, a made up story or, or, or princes and print, you know, but you realize, no, no, these are human beings. And this is a person that ha- this happened to a person. I, I think it's partly because being insecure is one of the most raw human emotions that everyone can relate to on some level. There isn't a single person who can't relate to it. Someone, everyone has been insecure at some point in their life. And when, when I tell that to people, immediately it clicks for them. Like, it, because beforehand, they're like, oh, how could you make a decision like this? How could, you, how could you do something like this? Like, couldn't you think a little more clearly or a little bit more in the future? But as soon as I explain to them why, then they think back on themselves and realize you know, I've made some pretty poor decisions being driven by insecurities. So I can see how that could have happened. Yeah. And we've all made really big mistakes that we wouldn't be stoked to um, have on the internet. At least yeah. I, have. I can't think yeah. of any of my mistakes that I would be stoked to have on the internet. 
<laughs> Particularly any of them that involve me being naked. <laughs> And so, look, I I don't want to, you know, I want to, I have tremendous respect for you and I I don't want to go anywhere stupid, but I I do have to sort of ask, like, what's it like the first time you go to do this? Like, what's that? Oh, adrenaline just completely takes over. To be honest with you, looking, looking back on it and trying to remember it, even when I'm sitting down and just trying as hard as I can. I, to me, it never lasted more than 30 seconds because it was all a blur, a, like fight or flight takes over. And like, I I really have no idea what happened. And it's not like, it, it it's not a very grounding thing where, you know, there's five people in the room and there's 10 people on like on set and people standing all around. It's really just you, another person, a camera person, and sometimes someone holding a boom mic, but usually not. So it can be just you and the other actor and a, and yeah. a camera person. Yeah. So or it's not, it's not like, it. yeah, it's not like what you see in the movies or, you know, on those documentaries where things are happening in like shady ho- looking motel rooms and places like that. Like it's an actual professional set. People come, they set up or you rent a very beautiful Airbnb and it happens there. People set up lights, everything. Then everyone leaves except for the cameraman. So the crew that does it, they don't hang out for uh, the event, the scene, so to speak. No. And if anything, they stick around and hang around outside or in the cars or in a very different part of the house uh, just to be respectful and give some space. Honestly, it's because in case one of their cell phones goes off and the scene is ruined, but <laughs> they just yeah. kick everyone out. And then they come back, they break down and, you know, it's a normal job. They go about their normal day. Really, everyone I met who worked for uh, the company, I'm not going to name them because I don't want to give them the free press, but there was so many normal people working there, like people with families, people who were so sweet, women. Like It's it's crazy how desensitized they are to what's going on because they don't even bat an eye to it. So it's not like some stereotype that we might have in our mind of a bunch of creepy, weird dudes or whatever. No, it's not. It's not like the, you know, people with the mustaches and the fluffers and everything. No, it's a girl wearing Toms talking about, you know, this new kombucha she tried last weekend. Yeah, right. (laughs) And so like when you're setting up and you're getting ready to start, like what's in your mind? Do you even, do you remember? Not really because... At that same time, you're in hair and makeup and you're talking to the very normal makeup artist, asking her about her son and how he's liking, you know, his new school since she just switched him to private. And it's all very normal things happening right until the actual filming begins. And that's when, you know, normality, you know, shakes hands with adrenaline and they hand each other off. Wow. And then what happens when you, you know, you get home and you you realized, Hey, I just did that for the first time. So initially it's, it's a little empowering. Um, I, I really don't like using that word to describe it because that's not the type of empowerment that lasts. That is a very fleeting empowerment where you feel good about yourself and then it starts to sink in what you've done and you know the fears and the paranoia start to start to take over like what am i doing like is this a good decision and before you know it it's you know 
two weeks later and you're there to do the same thing again. And then it's a vicious cycle until you get snapped out of it. And for me, the snap was when people found out about it, when it started to pick up attention. And I did the scene in the hijab that got, you know, reported on by CNN, Newsweek, every major publication you can think of, um, because it caused such a stir in the Middle East. And um, maybe tell me about sort of what it was like to get swept up in that kind of massive international coverage. And then I know there were some pretty spooky things that happened to you um, as a result with ISIS and so forth. But take me back to that time. Uh, So I started to get death threats on Twitter from ISIS, ISIS sympathizers, you know, people who were radicalized, but my, a photo of my head was photoshopped onto somebody being beheaded saying you're next for what you've done or something along those lines. And, uh, then I, I ended up having to move out of my apartment because there was a Google image, uh, screenshot sent to me saying, we know where you live. And it was a photo of my apartment complex. And it was all of these terrible things that started to happen when it started to gain attention. And for me at first, it was so jarring and the complete opposite of why I was, I was doing this because I I thought it would be something no one would ever find out about it. And when it got that big, I gained a million followers in the span of, I think three days. So it really snowballed and did not stop snowballing for a while. Um, and at that point, my, I guess my rationale was, okay, my life feels kind of ruined. I might as well keep doing this, which is why I continue to do it for a month afterwards. But I really like, I think reality just set in and I, I, I realized this is not what I want to be doing that that I don't want to be on camera naked. I'm not doing this for the right reasons. There are plenty of women who thrive from doing that, who absolutely love it and can't imagine doing anything else. But for me, it was just a wild party phase that unfortunately was videotaped and then published and then publicized for the whole world to see through a medium where I can never get it taken down. Uh, Unfortunately, most women most women do go through this phase where they have sex with, you know, 12 plus men in the span of a year, except it happens in college and no one ever finds out about it because then they graduate and it's all behind them. But unfortunately for me, my wildest phase is out there for everyone to see. Wow. I I don't know why I want to say this, but me, all I feel like saying is I'm sorry, you know? (laughs) So I'm like, I appreciate that. That actually means a lot. Well, look, I just think of myself at that age and, and, um, you know, when I was doing a little bit of homework on you and stuff and realized that you're, you're 26 today. Um, I think most people would say a 26 year old person's a young person, right? Like you were very young when you made these decisions. Right. And so it's, yeah, all I just want to say is, fuck, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know? Um, now, the interesting thing, though, I, I got to imagine, I mean, you you knew you you were, uh, had become successful, had become very well known. I mean, after the whole hijab thing blew up and CNN and all that, and I mean, 
you, you knew that you were now very, very popular in this world, right? Not so much popular, but uh, more infamous because I still wasn't seen as a quote unquote porn star by people who were actually in the industry because I mean, and rightfully so in their eyes, I've what shot five scenes that doesn't make that like people have been working their whole lives for that term, which is why I also hate it because I'm not that I, you know, got naked on camera a few times. That doesn't make me a porn star. I think what makes you a porn star is actually wanting to be one, which is absolutely not what I am. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely ostracized by the industry. Not that I have anything to complain about that. I'm perfectly fine with that because they see me as ungrateful, but the mainstream sees me as tarnished because of what I've done. I'm kind of in this weird limbo of, you know, some companies won't work with me. Some companies want to work with me, but it's under the pretense of the wrong reasons. And I'm just trying to figure out where I fit in and trying to forge my way into the mainstream world right now. It's so fascinating how you put that. Um, the other thing that I've uh, read about you is, you know, I've heard some people criticize you because you still use the name that you used when you were in the adult business, um, the, the, uh, your, your stage name or whatever. And, and that, you know, you're trading in on the fame that you got from there. But the reality is, you tried to go back to normal life, if I understand correctly. Did you not? Yeah. I went off Instagram for an entire year. Um, I my, my account actually got hacked and then uh, deleted by Instagram because there was ISIS propaganda being pushed on it by the hacker. So they just completely erased the account. Um, so I went and I got a normal job at a law firm. I That didn't work out. Then I got a job as a bookkeeper at a construction firm. And... Um, after being in the actual, you know, everyday nine to five workforce and realizing it doesn't matter where I am, I am always going to get recognized. I'm, I, I don't know if I want to be stuck making, you know, $2 above minimum wage just to be, just to feel this way sitting at the desk I'm at. And anyone who's any client who walks in gives me all of these side looks and, you know, makes these comments and all this stuff. So I... I mean, I decided to kind of just take it into my own hands, recreate an Instagram account and try and profit off of this terrible, terrible thing that I've done that possibly could have ruined my future and see if I can make it into something good. And I, I've been surprised to, uh, to, re to read, I had no, I excuse my ignorance, I, but I had no idea you had reached this crazy level of fame where, um, somebody coming into an office would recognize you. Oh yeah. It was, I mean, I was being followed going to the grocery store. I could not go out in public and it really all happened overnight. It was, it, it, that, that's still the weirdest thing for me to get used to. And now it's to the point where I don't like leaving my house. All of my groceries come through Instacart. If you know, I need to go to the butcher, I send my fiance. I try very hard to limit going outdoors, which makes me sound like a recluse, but so <laughs> I really just love being on the couch. Go out if if, um, if uh, you and Robert go out to dinner tonight or whatever? Um, sometimes people will come up to us while we're eating, which is, to me, extremely disrespectful. I would never do that to Billy Joe Armstrong if I saw him having dinner with 
fucking Trey Cool and Mike Durant. Like I would, I would just leave them alone. They're eating. They're talking about whatever they want to be talking about. But my God, people have no tact. They will come up to me and Robert and his parents all sitting at dinner, like clearly having a family moment and ask for a photo. And I just look at them like, are you fucking stupid? What are you showing? Oh, oh my God. My, my manager has been like putting this under me to, so I could see it out of the corner of my eye. We were, we were in London a couple weeks ago. Um, and we went to restaurant Gordon Ramsay, which is his Michelin three-star restaurant. And we saw Michelle Rodriguez sitting down and eating her dinner. And I am a huge fan of the show Lost. So I started to freak out sitting there in the foyer waiting to be seated. And I'm, Jeff was like, go up to her and say hi to her. I'm like, that is, I would, no, absolutely not. I know how I feel when people do that to me. I'm not going to do that to her. I don't care how much I love her. You know, if I see her in the kitchen getting a tour afterwards, different. If, you know, she's done eating uh, before we're done eating, I'll pay for her meal and like tell the waiter to tell her that, I'm a huge fan, but I will absolutely never walk up to someone while they're having a meal. And so did you get to meet her or not so much? No, she snuck out. She left before I could like even ask to pay for her bill. (laughs) So, so you find yourself in this situation where it doesn't feel like you can have an accounting job. Yeah, exactly. Um, And it, it, you know, my second employer, the one where uh, the one at the construction firm, he was extremely sympathetic of my situation. I got I got the job through uh, a friend who worked at the company who, you know, knew my story, knew me personally and knew who I was as a human being rather than what the internet thought I was and he kind of convinced him to take a chance on me. And I started to feel guilty because he would get bombarded with questions from clients or if I had to go on site, God forbid to either bring them blueprints or something like on, onto a construction site, he wouldn't they stop knew hearing who you were. it immediately that he would not stop hearing about it for the rest of the day. And then that made me start to feel like a burden for anyone who was associated with me. And I didn't want people thinking poorly of, you know, my employer who was one of the nicest human beings imaginable, very, very generous man, generous with his time, his everything. You know, I have nothing bad to say about him because of the huge gamble he took in hiring me, but the guilt started to get to me, which was another pushing factor to make me kind of take my life into my own hands and turn a terrible situation into a potential career. And so when, when do you say, Hey, um, maybe I could be this new thing called, uh, you know, a digital internet, Instagram, (gasps) I don't, I don't even know what to call you, star, celebrity. Well, it didn't, it didn't start what, that what way. What do you call yourself today? I don't even, I hate it when people ask me what I do. I, I just say I live on the internet. Yeah. So you're, so, so when do you decide, well, this is, I think, what I'm going to do now. And, well, and how do you deal with the fact that if you didn't like being recognized before, you're about to make it a lot worse? Well, I knew that I didn't have to leave my house to post ads on Instagram. So that was like step number one. Like, okay, I can do this from home. I don't have to do meet and greets and things like that because I mean, that's something I would never do. But um, it started in March of 2016. I went to visit Austin, Texas, and I fell in love with the city. And that's when I decided to uh, move away from Miami, which was 
pretty, it was a pretty toxic place. It's a very transient city. No one really lays roots down there. So you always feel like it's a revolving door anytime you make friends. Um, so I moved to Austin in June and I reopened my Instagram account of in January of 2016. Uh, because when my account initially got hacked, I had close to 3 million followers and, you know, I was making some money selling, um, you know, t-shirts and random advertisements here and there. It was like a paycheck of a thousand dollars per post or something. Cause I was a terrible self-manager. Um, <laughs> my manager is rolling his eyes at how much I charged for a post at 3 million followers. <laughs> um, so yeah, I kind of went to Austin with a sense of, uh, this is a fresh start and I, I, I get to make the rules for this. Like I get to choose who I work with and who I don't work with and what I do and don't do. And I, I mean, I struggled for a while. Like it wasn't, I wasn't flush or, you know, making all this money. And I, I'm, I'm still not because so many companies just straight up will not work with me, but it definitely started to get better and bigger. And, uh, that's where I met my best friend. Who's also my manager. I forced him to be my manager and as soon as I brought him on, uh, that's when, like, I actually started to get, like, I got my, as a kid, if you had told me in 20 years, you're going to be hosting a show about sports with your hero, Gilbert Arenas, I would have laughed in your face. But then it happened. And I, it's, I don't know, I still, it's still surreal to me. I, I met Gilbert Arenas. How cool is that? I met Gilbert Arenas. Yeah. <laughs> I love how you love that. It's great. Every day I would come into the studio, I would just look at him like, man, you're my hero. I love you so much. Thank you for what you did to, for DC. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a, do you have like a bust of him in your house now? Cause you don't get to see him quite as often or. <laughs> no, we, we still keep in touch very regularly, but what he gave me uh, when uh, the show ended was, the coolest thing ever. It was a game worn Jersey that we signed and inscribed. We both signed it and, and then inscribed the name of our show on. So I have that to show to my future kids when they question me for being cool. And the interesting thing I, I find about what you've done is um, you, you, you tell me if I'm not understanding, you didn't really go work for somebody, right? Like in the past, a person would have to go if they, they want to capitalize on their notoriety, however they had gotten it, and they wanted to do the kinds of things that you're doing, they would be associated with some big media company and that company would hire them to do yeah. a cable show or a TV show or satellite radio or what, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But you just said, hey, I'm going to turn my, I'm going to use these social platforms and I'm going to use my love and knowledge of sports and you, you, you know, you have a diverse uh, set of interests and I'm just going to turn myself into a digital media brand. Yeah. Cause I, I, I mean, it was also a time when I saw other people doing the same thing. I didn't go into reopening my Instagram with, you know, a game plan or anything like that. I literally created an account. And I think my first, my first picture was a picture of like, my makeup laying out on my desk while working at the uh, bookkeeping job at the construction firm. And I was like, oh, look at this mess, you know, slow day today, decided to do my makeup. Like, it was something stupid. And uh, I think by the time I moved to Austin, I in six months, I gained half a million followers. And then it kind of just started to snowball from there um, without me really 
doing much other than just being myself on social media. So when people try and tell me, oh, you only have this many followers because you did porn, I can say back to them, like, yeah, most people know me from that. But, you know, for two years, I didn't have social media. And I started this from scratch and built it up all on my own. Yeah. And I, I got it. Well, not all, not all my own. It, ta- it takes a village. And by village, I mean my manager, Jeff. Yeah. Well, I understand. I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be where I am without uh, our producer, Jamie and, and oh, Sarah yeah. Knox. So yeah. unsung heroes. Thank you, Jamie and Sarah. Yeah. Oh my God. All day long. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I get that part, but, but the reality is you and Jeff, and maybe with some help from your fiance and some of your other friends and loved ones, but a very small group of people have created a, um, digital media business that is, you know, of consequence. Yeah. It's, it's really, really exciting to see, to look back and see what we've done when, you know, going from, you know, 2 million followers to close to 18 million now in the span of like almost three years, it's, it's really jarring. And it kind of, it makes me want to help other girls know how to, portray, not, not so much portray themselves because that's what I want women to avoid doing, like portraying a lifestyle and an image that they think, you know, will make them famous on social media. When in reality, it's being genuine and being just unapologetically you. Hmm. The other interesting thing I, I think about from a purely kind of marketing business perspective, you know, with my marketing hat on is your name had become a brand. You were one of the most um, viewed women on the internet. And so when you reboot your Instagram, everybody knows you as this adult star, mm-hmm. and, but you're not doing that on your Instagram. So yeah. in a lot of ways, if you look, if, 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 if you were a product, right, and people were used to the product being X, and one day you order X and you get Y, you're like, there's some meaningful number of people are like, Hey, I used to, the burger used to come this way and now you, the whole, it's not even a burger anymore. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, in, in a lot of ways you were from a pure marketing perspective, it was what we of course call a rebrand. And even from a strategy point of view, what I would say you're trying to do is you are trying to create this new niche. You described it earlier when you were talking about sort of sitting in between the adult world and then the, I don't know what to call it, the non-adult world or whatever. The mainstream and world? A, a little, a little shunned on both sides. And so you're finding this new, this new ground. Yes. Yeah. And so in that context, how hard is it when you're very well branded and, and super known for, for doing one thing and that's absolutely not the thing you're doing now? I'm still trying to change people's perspe- uh, perception of me. It's not, it's not a, it's not something that, you know, I attempt to do and then accomplish and that's it. I'm rebranded. Every day is a struggle to try and rebrand and chase and change people's opinions of me. Um, it's very, it's very hard for people to look past what I've done because of how much, you know, infamy and views it got. So it's as, as, as much as people like to say, we're open-minded, we're accepting, you know, everyone is an equal. It's absolutely not the case. If, and especially with me, like all of these companies who claim to be progressive and inclusive are also the same companies who say, no, we don't like the way you show up when, when we put your name into Google. But here's the crazy, like, I don't know the numbers, maybe, you know, do you know what percentage of 
people in the United States or Western world have consumed some kind of porn on the internet? Like 98%. Well, I mean, I, it's a, it's a big number, right? I mean, yeah. come on, well, listen, human beings like to look at other naked human beings. But shame is a very powerful emotion and people are ashamed of the fact that they enjoy porn and they consume it. So as soon as you put something like me in front of them, where I kind of have to make them come face to face with their shame and look at me like some, some, something who, something that's been objectified, but also is a real human being sitting there in front of them, having an actual conversation with them, it terrifies them. Well, 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 I mean, you don't terrify me. Why does it terrify people to have a conversation with you? What's that? You, you don't terrify me. Why does it terrify people to have a conversation with you? Because because it makes them come face to face with their shame. Like they're, it's so conflicting for them emotionally to feel one way about pornography and then look at me and kind of feel sympathy and empathy or you know whichever one and it it just it confuses them and because they're confused then they're they don't know if they should be ashamed and they don't know if you know the way that they've thought about other porn actresses is valid and it's just a I don't know. I've had some very strange experiences where I can tell that everything they're saying is being driven by some level of shame. Wow. Uh, well, you don't, you don't fire any of that up in me. And, um, you know, why can't people just be adults? Well, because you have more than two brain cells. Yeah. I'm, I'm just fascinated like with this, this, you know, I'm always fascinated by things like you're presented with something in your case, you could have completely made a different decision. You could have said, hey, listen, I'm one of the most, and on, at certain points in time, you were the number one uh, you know, uh, gal in this field, certainly in, in certain parts of the internet. You could have said, hey, listen, I'm going full tilt boogie, and I'm going to be, <clears throat> excuse me, like go for a Jenna Jameson type move or what have you like go go do that and and monetize it and be successful and I, look I don't know what the hell do I know it's not a world I know but I got to believe there's some people in that world that chose to be in that world and are there because no, exactly. they, be, they enjoy yeah. it it's the way they want to build their life and they don't have shame and and this is what they're doing and fucking hey god bless them and god bless America yeah uh, you you are not wanting to choose like you said no to that no, because because for me, my intentions in doing it in the first place didn't come from a place of this is what I want to be doing because I think that this is how women should be empowered. It came from a deep-seated need for validation that I was seeking in all of the wrong places, whereas those women actually thrive off of being in front of the camera and you know having men see them that way, um, and which is also, I think, why they don't, they, they don't like me. They think that I'm ungrateful for, uh, the platform I have and how much I've grown because of, you know, quote unquote, where I started. Um, I, I mean, they're working their ass off and no pun intended every single day to try and get to even a quarter of where I'm at. But I mean, I don't know what to say. I didn't ask yeah, for I mean, this. You walked away from this. You walk yeah. away from what are for some people their their dream would have exactly. been the situation you were in. Yeah. And it's also I have to ask you just as a marketer, uh, what have you learned about 
uh, rebranding, repositioning, uh, creating this new niche in between that you just you talked about. And of course, I want to talk, if you've got any secrets on digital marketing, I'd love to hear those too. But just at the more of the strategic level, how you've, you know, people came to you looking for X and you wanted to do this whole new thing. And so that meant you had to really reposition and rebrand yourself. And now you're creating this new niche. Tell me what that experience has been like. Well, for me personally, it's been a lot of overthinking and being erring on the side of caution and just really being as careful as I possibly can with what I put out there. Um, I don't have the uh, privilege of being able to just post whatever photo I want and make a funny caption with an innuendo because for me, it always comes back to, oh, this is ver- this is too porny. This is way too sexual and things get over-sexualized so fast with me. Um, like I have to be careful about you know what I stand next to. I've said no to bachelorette parties because I knew that there was going to be straws shaped like dildos that for me would absolutely ruin all of the work I've done in trying to rebrand. But for any other woman in the world, it's a fun bachelorette party. So, so only certain kinds of straws. Yes, yes. And definitely not paper. Paper straws just disintegrate in your mouth. And Oh my God. Can we get over this whole paper straw thing? So these are all things I assume that are in your rider. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, no, I bring my own. Plastic is fine as long as I'm reusing it. <laughs> did, you, did you use the term porny? Too porny? Oh, uh, yeah. That's not even a I word. But I've that's ever just... heard that before. That's funny. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, what have you learned from a marketing perspective on how to build a, you know, a really giant footprint um, digital presence? Uh, the biggest thing that I've learned is to know your limits and not let pride get in the way of asking for help. So I know my limits. I know that I am great on camera. I have a big personality and I will deliver anything you ask me to deliver, but I don't know how to turn the video on for a podcast and I don't know how to reset my router and I don't know how to create a Google Hangout. So curate a team of people who will help you be the best you so that you're not spread too thin doing all of these other things that you're just not good at. And admit it, it's fine. It's totally fine to not be good at everything. You're good at what you're good at and you have the people around you to help you, to help elevate you and make you look the best. And I know you, you know, you read these things all the time that... Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, sorry. Uh, I always assume that Putin fools around with the technology every every once in a while. Um, uh, but you, I read all these things about how you know um, younger folks today. Many of them, the the job that you now have, uh, sort of social media personality, celebrity, is a job they really uh, aspire to have. Yeah. And so. Um, What's if you are what a lot of people want to be today, which is you know this digital star? What's that like? I would say don't aim for that. I would say aim for something that you love and something that you're passionate about, and you know try and be the best that you can be at that, and everything else will follow and fall into place. Like if you are just all about knitting and you love knitting. Be the best knitter you can be, document it, share that with the world, and you know the fame will come around that rather than just wanting to be famous to be famous on, on social media. I love that. And I'm reminded of one of my favorite uh, niche social media rock stars 
Um, I, we talked earlier about our hens. And so I follow on Facebook a gal, and I, I don't know her, her real name, but her brand name, she calls herself the Chicken Chick. And she's like, everybody who has backyard chickens, which is this craze now that just keeps growing, we all subscribe to the Chicken Chick, and she goes live on Facebook, and you can ask her questions, and she, you know, she's, she's yes. the of, of backyard See, chickens. This is what I'm talking about. Like, I found this guy on YouTube yesterday because I've been looking heavily into uh, – you know, trying to get the best credit score that I can have so that we can buy a house in a few years. Um, this guy has 8 million subscribers on YouTube. His videos average like 2 million views. And all he talks about is which credit card is the right credit card for you and how to get the best, you know, how to utilize your rewards the best way you can. And he's just this like nerdy little guy who clearly does this in his spare bedroom. You can hear his wife doing dishes in the background, but he's making 30 grand a month just from these YouTube videos. How funny is that? Yeah. Uh, I guess Andy Warhol was right. Everybody in the future is going to be famous, right? Yeah. <laughs> at least yeah, for, exactly. At least for their 15 seconds. Uh, <laughs> the, the internet means we can be famous for a lot longer. <laughs> but unfortunately, it means that it's out there forever. Y- y- yes. And uh, uh, I wonder about that <clears throat> doing what I do. I can't imagine. Um, I, can't, I can't imagine with your history. I mean, it's, it's not just to me, all of these celebrities are there. I mean, they're digging up tweets that they posted in like 2008. Like Kevin Hart couldn't host the Oscars because of a tweet he posted in 2010. Who is the same person as they were in 2010? The, the rules in America and in the world were different back then. Like the way that we treated and talked to each other were completely different. So you can't punish someone for mistakes they made years ago. Well, and people even look at you sideways and, you know, like as a guy, look, I don't think there's a guy who was alive in say 2000, who was an adult male in 2000, who worked in business with women who wouldn't, if they were being totally candid, say, look, there's things we said and did then that we're not doing and saying now. And it doesn't mean we're a bad guy. Exactly. The world was just different back then. And I, I think that's a perfectly valid excuse when someone brings up something you did or said in the past. It's like, the world was different back then. Because it's true. I mean, now yeah. we're more self-aware and, you know, aware of each other's feelings and more, much more sympathetic and all of that. But back then it was like, go back to the kitchen. And, and there's words we used to say that we don't say anymore. Cause yeah. Go, you know what? That's not cool. That's okay. It's called evolving, right? Exactly. What's important is that we learn from all of the mistakes that we do, that we've done. Now, Mia, is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap? No. This wow. Was that already an hour? Uh, I think it's a little over an hour. I'm not positive. Oh, I haven't been paying close attention, but um, that went by quick. Yeah. No, no. I'm I'm good. Well, I can't thank you enough. I try to imagine what it might have been like to be in your shoes. And I just wish you a ton of success and, um, and happiness and uh, a, a long, happy marriage and, and life and continued success. I appreciate that. And I wish you dozens and dozens of eggs from Winifred. Yes, yes. <laughs> I hope Winifred makes eggs for many years to come. <laughs> this was Thank an absolute so pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mia. There she is, Mia Khalifa. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And if you did, we would love it if you shared this episode. 
you know, lots to reflect on here. Um, but it just goes to show you that with tenacity and commitment, you know, we can overcome pretty much anything. All right. We would like to thank Mia Khalifa. You can check her out on Instagram at Mia, M-I-A-K-H-A-L-I-F-A. That's Mia Khalifa on Instagram and on most social channels. My dear friends at OneLifeFullyLived.org, helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. I I would also love to encourage you to check out um, my new podcast on marketing, aptly named Lockhead on Marketing. You can check that out at Lockhead.com, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D, or wherever you get legendary podcasts. That's Lockhead on Marketing. And I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes. And this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. Warning, clearly this oddcast goes better with libations and is created in a studio that does contain nuts. Um, Remember to teach peace. Tell two people you love about two podcasts you love. Remember, in many states in the United States, it's illegal to go slowly in the left lane. So don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Uh, Remember to listen to Green Day. Don't forget that happy chickens make healthy eggs and so only buy pasture-raised free-range eggs because chickens are people too. I love you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And uh, hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Richard C. Kelly, chairman of PG&E. Sorry, Dick, we just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with me. Um, Stay legendary. And until we're together again, of course, follow your difference. 